0: It's time for us to begin Lesson 6 of our study on the person of Christ, an introduction. Don't you like how it's called an introduction? <laughs> uh, some of these things are challenging, you know, but they are, they are introductory uh, on this topic. We're going to be looking at the second part of Chapter 6 uh, this morning, The Road to the Chalcedonian Definition of Christ. Is that right, chapter 6? Let's see. Yes, uh, it's second half of chapter 5, the road to the Chalcedonian definition of Christ. Is, is that correct? I hope I have it right. Yes. Okay, let's open in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, I do pray that you would help us to grow in our understanding of who Christ is. Uh, we do confess to you, O God, that this doctrine is a mystery, It's beyond our comprehension in some ways, um, but yet your scriptures have spoken clearly. You have spoken to us clearly through the scriptures about Christ. And so give us understanding, O Lord. Uh, Increase our comprehension and our appreciation for what you have done for us in Him. In His name we pray. Amen. So this chapter was a bit too long to consider in, in one part. We've divided it into two in the first part of uh, this chapter, we looked at the formulation of Nicene Trinitarian orthodoxy. We, we, we looked at the Nicene Creed, remember? And the Nicene Creed, Creed does have some things to say about Christ, uh, but the Chalcedonian definition expands upon that and adds clarity and precision uh, to what is said in the Nicene Creed. Uh, concerning the person of Christ. And so uh, this chapter, the second portion of it, helps us to understand how we get to Chalcedon. And there's a theme here you'll notice, and I think it was introduced at the first part of this chapter. It really is these heresies uh, that force the church to speak with greater clarity, more and more clarity over time concerning the Trinity and concerning Uh, who Christ is. It it really is errors and heresy that forces the church to tighten up its speech uh, concerning uh, these things. So never should we celebrate heresy uh, within the church, but there is a sense in which um, it is helpful in that it forces us to think more clearly. I wanted to say also a word about uh, theology, and it came out in the sermon last Sunday on uh, the question... Um, why the Incarnation? Um, when we do theology, we are, we are approaching the Scriptures, but we're seeking more and more understanding. Uh, we're seeking to take all that the Scriptures have to say and to, and to gather it together in one place and to think and to speak clearly about what the Bible says on if, any given subject. More and more I am concerned, and you hear it come out in my preaching uh, with uh, the, the, the air of Biblicism uh, this idea that we just need Scripture and we only need to quote Scripture and we not, ought not to use terminology that's not found in Scripture. Uh, Biblicism is an error that is prevalent, I think, in the church today, and more and more I'm seeing that it is problematic on so many levels. Um, the Bible is our authority for truth. It is the Word of God. It is our foundation. But yet the Bible is written in such a way where we have to consider all that it says and bring together these great truths that are revealed in it. Um, and do theological work and uh, and assemble theological formulations like these, the Nicene Creed and eventually the Chalcedonian Definition. So, uh, let's move through the second half of this chapter, pages 97 through 107. Uh, the first heading that we'll be considering today is from the Nicene Creed to the Chalcedonian Definition. I quote well, I'm at length here, page 97. After the rejection of Arianism and the establishment of Trinitarian Orthodoxy, The Church turned its attention to further questions that arose concerning the nature of the Incarnation. As people reflected on the profound truth that the Word became flesh, John 1.14, some formulations veered into the ditch of compromising Christ's uh, humanity, Apollinarianism, of nullifying the unity of Christ's person, Nestorianism, or of simply confusing the creator-creature distinction in the Incarnate Son, monophysitism. So here in brief, three types of errors. Three errors are mentioned and um, I think all of the errors that people make concerning the person of Christ, the two natures and the unity of the person of Christ, could fall under uh, one of these three categories that have been uh, mentioned. In responding to these false ways of formulating the incarnation, the church gained further conceptual clarity and precision. Leading to Chalcedon. Let's look at each of these views before turning to the theology of the Chalcedonian definition. Um, and by the way, we'll get there, but the Chalcedonian definition was formulated in 451 AD. Uh, so 126 years after Nicaea, 126 years kind of interesting to think about time, isn't it? Uh, just the passing of time and uh, how much can happen in in that amount of time anyways. um, So, first of all, we're going to consider Apollinarianism. Uh, This is a very helpful way to understand uh, the theological formulation that was brought to us at Chalcedon. Uh, We're going to look at the errors, first of all, and then the definition. Apollinarianism. Uh, What was wrong with Apollinarianism? Well, It had a word-flesh understanding of the Incarnation contra the word-man view of Chalcedon. Uh, That's an interesting way of putting it. Um, Word-flesh instead of word-man. We need to talk about Jesus Christ as being the eternal word or son of God uh, who assumed a human nature word man. That's the proper way of speaking of Christ. He is the God man. He is not merely the word who took on flesh, even though the scriptures speak in that way. uh, The scriptures, when they speak of flesh, they do not merely mean flesh alone, but rather a human nature. Uh, Flesh means human. So we have to define all of these terms. Apollinarianism viewed Christ as being the word who took on flesh, but not an entire human nature. That's the problem. A word flesh view insisted that in the incarnation the divine son or word replaced the human soul and assumed only human flesh. That is to say only a human body which resulted in a incomplete human nature. Do do you understand how this is a problem? Um, You know it it's, it's such um, precise terminology that we're wrestling with here, but it's very important terminology. Apollinarianism, when they envisioned the incarnation, they saw the eternal Son of God taking to himself a human body only and not a complete human nature. For Apollinarius, in Christ, there is a substantial union of one heavenly element, that is to say the Word or the Son, and one earthly element, a human body, which results in one nature, a kind of composite union of the divine Logos and human flesh, forming the self-determining individual we know as Jesus. Uh, So when we talk about Jesus, we need to talk about one person, existing in two natures. That's how we need to talk about Jesus. In the person of Christ there is the full divine nature and there is the full human nature united together in the one person. But according to Apollinarius and his followers, you have one person and one nature. And this one nature is a kind of composite or a mixture of the divine and the human. So the divine assumes a human body only, and so there is one nature that is, at the end of the day, neither fully divine nor fully human. Uh, here are some questions that we might ask of this view. How do we account for Jesus' full human psychology, then, When we look at the life of Christ, as it is reported to us in the Gospels, we see that Jesus grew in wisdom. He grew in wisdom from His childhood up until His adulthood. He grew in wisdom as He grew in stature. In other words, He's like us in this regard. We humans grow in wisdom over time, hopefully. And we grow in stature over time. That was said of Jesus. How do we account for that if, if Jesus did not take to himself a human soul? That is to say, if he did not have a human, human mind, a human will, and human affections. Uh, so that's, a, that's a, a human thing. God, in the divine nature, does not grow in wisdom, does he? No, he is wisdom. And so that cannot be said of the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, that He grew in wisdom. It could only be said of one who possesses a human nature. That's a human thing to grow in wisdom, not a divine thing. And so that is a question we must press uh, this view with. How do we account for Jesus' full human psychology then? How could we say that He grew in wisdom if He is not fully man in, a, in, in His soul? Um, Jesus weeping over the death of, of Lazarus. Um, uh, the, the experience that Jesus had in the Garden of Gethsemane, where He is uh, in anguish and sweating drops of blood even, so, so in anguish is He. And He's praying to the Father, if, if it is possible, let this cup pass from Me, nevertheless not My will, but Your will be done. There's so much there. That, that's, a, that's a human thing to do, not a divine thing to do. You see, and in that moment, you see that uh, that Jesus possessed human uh, emotion. He had human affections and desires. In that moment, you see that he also possessed a human will. Are you tracking with me here? So that within the one person of Jesus Christ, there was a, a human will and a divine will. Um, I think we'll get to that um, in the in the next chapter or two and flesh that out, no pun intended, um, more. But it's a very good question. We, We cannot say that the word simply assumed a human body. We must say that Jesus was truly physical. He had a true human body. But there are also many indicators that he possessed a true human soul as well. So Apollinarianism falls short here it has a word-flesh understanding of the Incarnation and not a word-man view of the Incarnation as as we ought to have. Um, another question, or at least another uh, concern here about this view. A word-flesh view robs us of the kind of Redeemer we need, one who will render human obedience for us. Uh, this came out in the sermon last Sunday, uh, near to the end of it, when I quoted Nazianzus, who said, um, that which is not assumed is not redeemed. Or was it Athanasius who said, that which is not assumed is not healed. The idea here is that in order for us to be redeemed and healed, uh, body and soul, Christ had to assume, the eternal (coughs) Son of God had to to assume a full human nature, body, and soul. And that leads us to point three under C. For this reason, the church strongly rejected Apollinarianism on soteriological grounds. That's interesting, isn't it? This really became a debate about soteriology, about the doctrine of salvation, uh, because these theologians who were wrestling with this question understood that it is our salvation that's at stake here. What was the purpose of the incarnation? Christ came to redeem humanity. And he came to redeem humanity in the way that he did because it was the only way possible. It was a work that only God could do. So God had to do it. Uh, The the person of the Son had to be present. The divine nature had to be present. And it was a work that man had to do as well. Man had to atone for sin. Man had to obey the covenant of redemption. Man had to earn the beatific vision in the way that Adam failed to. So the Messiah had to be God, and the Messiah had to be man. These theologians were right to understand that um, it, was our, it, it, it is our salvation, really, that is at stake. Christ cannot represent and redeem us if he is not fully human. And here is that Nazianzus uh, quote, what is not assumed is not healed. I think I reversed it, didn't I? Uh, Nazianzus said healed. I think it was... Did I say Athanasius? Um, Redeemed. Okay, so Apollinarianism uh, threatened and had to be dealt with, and it helped to bring us to the Chalcedonian definition. Nestorianism also threatened the church in these days. Nestorianism had a word man-view, so that is good, yet it failed to account for the unity of Christ's person. The union, according to Nestorius, was external and in appearance only. Christ is a composite of two personal subjects, the Logos and Man, which entails there are two persons in Christ, according to this view. So, Nestorianism does not have the word flesh problem, it is right to see that Christ is both, possesses both a divine nature and a human, the divine nature and a human nature. But it fails in regards to the union that exists within the person. Uh, the Nestorians, I suppose, would say that within Christ there are two natures and two persons, two natures and two persons. Uh, This is a serious error for two reasons. Uh, First, given that there are two persons in Christ, and given that the Word cannot suffer or die, the Word cannot participate in the human events of Christ's life, but only stands in the background. Um, We'll come to see, uh, by considering orthodoxy, that in fact the Eternal Son or Word of God did participate in our suffering. (coughs) We have a, a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. He was tempted as we are in every respect yet without sin. Uh, so Christ uh, the, the Son can sympathize with us. He did experience the, the trials and tribulations of life. He was sincerely tempted. He suffered. He, he died not according to the divine nature but according to the human nature. We, we must We must confess this, that there is one person in Christ, and the person is the Son. The person is the Son. That is where the human and the divine natures find their union. Not by intermixing with one another. Not by intermixing with one another. Contra-Apollinarianism. But they find their union in the person of the Son. That's the point of contact. It's the person of the Son, the eternal Son of God, who is, who is the subject, who is acting through the divine nature and through the human nature of Christ, respectively. So, Nestorianism must be rejected. It says there are two persons in Christ, and given that the Word cannot suffer or die. The Word cannot participate in the human events of Christ's life, but only stands in the background. So there you have two persons. You have the eternal Son, the second person of the triune God, and another person, a human person, existing in the flesh. This is the view of the, the Nestorian. Second, in denying that the single person slash, slash subject in Christ is the divine Son... Nestorius could not affirm that God the Son died for us in his humanity and thus accomplished our salvation. What we need is the divine son to assume our human nature in his own person so that we can so that he can represent us and act on our behalf as our new covenant head and substitute. Are you are you tracking with this? The, the, um, There's not two persons in Christ, there's one, though there are two natures. And the scriptures do speak this way of the Messiah. Um, The scriptures say in Acts, and I cannot remember chapter and verse right now, that God, and this is not a quote but a paraphrase of it, that God shed his blood for the church. Think of that. God shed His blood for the Church. The Scriptures speak in that way concerning the work that the Messiah did. So there's such a union between the divine nature and the human nature in the person of the Son that the Scriptures speak in this way. That that God shed His blood for the Church. God doesn't have blood. No, but the person of the Son acting through the human nature of Christ died for us. The divine nature did not die. The divine nature experienced no change whatsoever. But God was truly with us in the person of Christ. God suffered for us, not according to the divine nature, but in the human nature. You you understand? I mean, when when I've wrestled with this doctrine over the years, and I've had to, I will confess to you, I've had to come back to it again and again because it it just blows your mind. But as I've wrestled with this doctrine and as I've gained more and more clarity concerning who Christ is, I've said to others, it, it just brings God so much more close. God really did come and tabernacle amongst us. God really did come to suffer for us. There is a sense in which we may speak this way. We must speak this way. God really did come to die for us. We must speak with precision there, not in His divine nature, but in the human nature that He assumed. He suffered for us. He shed His blood for us. That's the wonder and mystery and the glory of the incarnation. As you wrestle with these mysterious and difficult truths, it should ultimately bring God closer to you. God came to serve as our, our mediator and great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. And the Nestorian view robs us of something very important here by claiming that within the one within the i suppose we may say within the christ fleshly considered there are two persons a human person and a divine person each working through their respective natures the divine and the human you have this this division within christ according according to the nestorian view and therefore you do not really have the person of the son working through the human nature which is what we must confess thirdly monophysitism this view came from a fellow named Eutychius. He taught that as a result of the incarnation, Christ's human nature was taken up, absorbed, and merged into the divine nature so that both natures were changed into one new nature, a nature that, was, that, that now was a kind of divine human. So you'll see in just a moment... That when we talk about the natures of Christ, we must confess that they were not in any way merged or mingled together or mixed in any way so as to create a composite. Why would that be a problem as it pertains to our doctrine of God if, if the human nature? Mer- so, here, what I'm telling you is that the union is found in the person. The two natures are united where? Where are they united in in Christ? They are united in the person of the Son. The Son is the subject acting through these two natures. So there is unity in Christ. Christ is one person acting through two natures. But in this view, the the union is not located in the person of the Son. The union is located in the nature, the divine nature so, that the divine nature absorbs the human, creating a third thing. And I've heard the answer to the question already. Uh, you know what it is. This creates a major problem for our doctrine of God because the scriptures are so very clear that God cannot change. He cannot change. And if the, the, the union in Christ were located in the natures, in the divine nature and the human nature, then we would have to say there is change. That occurred within the second person of the triune God. So we must reject all forms of monophysitism. Uh, This is another form of word flesh Christology that we just like we talked about earlier. At the end of the day, with this view, we end up with a Savior who is no savior at all, uh, because he is neither truly God nor truly man neither truly God nor truly man. Jed? Um, I, don't, I don't think we can press this, but if Christ, so the Son took on human nature, right? We say it, we're saying he added it. Assumed or added, as long as we define the word added, right? So, why, do, do, I think some people believe that the Son has always had existed with both natures. We don't say that though. No. Because that would also avoid change in the Godhead if he always had two natures. Right. Uh, it like show us that until the incarnation actually happened. Right. We would say that Christ assumed a full human nature, body and soul, in time when he was conceived by the the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary was born of her, grew in wisdom and stature, and so on. I was on a trip a while ago where I was really pressing that point, and I don't, I don't know if people caught it, but I, I was teaching. There, there is a sense in which Jesus Christ has not always existed. Jesus Christ had a beginning. You understand what I'm saying there? Like, there was a time when Jesus Christ as the God man was not. But there has never been a time where the Son of God. Was not. He's eternally begotten of the Father. So, th- this human nature was assumed at a point in time. It's not as if the human nature has always existed. The human nature of Christ has always existed. Uh, so, yeah, I suppose that that would be one way to try to alleviate the tension. I think that's what I hear you saying, Chad, that for some people that's one way to try to alleviate the tension to say, well, yeah, God hasn't changed because it's always been this way. Christ has always existed into eternity past. We, we say no, though that might seem to alleviate the the perception of change in in, in the mind. It's, it's not a good solution because we confess that God is a most pure spirit eternally, um, and and that no human beings existed prior to the moment of creation when God made Adam and Eve, and Christ, the the, the God-man, did not exist prior to the conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, So we need to do our theology and relieve this tension in another way. And I, I think Nicaea, and especially Chalcedon, was right to relieve the tension by saying that the, that, the, um, that the union of the natures, the divine and the human nature of Christ, take place in the person, take place in the person of the Son of God. Remember early in the study, I, I just was kind of joking with you, and well not joking, but I was pressing you with this question, saying, what are you? I'm, I'm a human. Who are you? Huh. (laughs) You know, we should hear names. I am so and so. I have a human nature just like you all have a human nature. The human nature is something different than the human person. Think about that. Isn't that interesting? The human nature is something different than the human person. We all have a human nature, we all have bodies. We all have souls, and within the soul we can further distinguish between the mind, the will, and the affections. I think that's a very good and helpful way to do it. So, we all have that. That's something we all have in common, each and every one of us. And yet, we are all different people. We're different persons. And so, when we think of the triune God, we are to think of one God... In three persons all fully having the divine nature, the Father eternally begetting the Son, the Son eternally begetting the Father and the Son eternally begetting the Spirit. But we're talking about personhood there when we talk about the the three subsistences of the triune God. We are saying that it is the person the person of the Son that acts through the human nature of Christ. We are not saying that it's the divine nature of the Son that acts through the human nature of Christ but the person of the Son who is the acting subject, both in the divine and the human nature. I, I think if you reflect on that more and more, it should help you to understand how this might work. It, it, it's, it's not the divine nature assuming humanity. Are you with me? It's not the divine nature... Assume, so, so the connection's not here. It's not the divine nature assuming a human nature. The connection's here. It's the person of the Son acting both through the divine nature... As he always has, as he always will, as he did even during the incarnation. It's the divine person acting through the divine nature and in the incarnation, acting. He's the acting subject in the human nature as well. And and that's the way to alleviate this tension. I mean, the scriptures don't put it in those the the scriptures don't put the matter in the in these theological terms. But when you pay careful attention to all that the scriptures say about Jesus, this is what we must confess. You know, it is a mystery, and when we do theology, we're trying to go as far as we can with our capacity to speak with precision and clarity about these things. And and this is ultimately what we what we must confess. I, I appreciate you bringing that up, Chad, because it, I think it is an error. But it's an error that has arisen in an attempt to solve a mysterious thing. But the trouble is that it doesn't account for all of the biblical data. It doesn't account for all of the biblical data. Uh, Really what it would do is it it, it just simply, um, that view that the the humanity of Christ has existed in eternity, it it actually... um, demolishes the creator-creature distinction, that most fundamental distinction that we must maintain. Um, God has existed eternally as a most pure spirit. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, etc., etc. So, so the humanity of Christ, the, the, the human nature of Christ, which category does it belong in? It does not belong in the creator category. It belongs in the creature category. The divine nature of Christ, the eternal Son, which category does He belong in? He belongs in the Creator category. All things were made through Him and for Him. Right? John. Yeah, the scriptures speak in that way, saying that Christ was crucified from before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? <laughs> well, He was crucified in time, but as as it pertains to God's decree, He was crucified before the foundations of the world. But He was made flesh in time and crucified for us in time. Yes, that's good. Yeah, we must distinguish between Person and nature. That is so key. We must do it as we try to understand ourselves as human beings. Make that distinction. It's easier with us. You you can see it. When when I say that to you, what are you and who are you? You go, okay, I get it. There's the nature, but there's also the person. And those are different things. We must do the same thing within the triune God. We must distinguish between nature and person. All three persons of the triune God have the fullness of the divine nature. And we must do the same thing in Christ. We must distinguish between, between person and nature. Uh, the person is the acting subject. The person is the one who acts through the nature. You act, you, you act through your human nature. You as a person, I could use your name. You know, Nick, you act through your human nature. You act through your mind, your will, your affections, and ultimately through your body. Right? But it's you as a person who does that. As a moral being. You know, as a person who will stand before God accountable. By the way, that is why we can exist. This is interesting. Uh, We just consider this in our catechism. What happens to believers? What are the benefits that believers enjoy at the moment of death? You don't have to recite it. Word for word, but you can summarize it for me. What does our catechism teach? That we are, we are transferred in, into glory. We, we enjoy God's presence immediately. Body and soul? Nope, not yet. But in soul only. So you as a person still exist. You as a person will enjoy the presence of God at the moment of death but not with a complete human nature. You as a person still exist. You'll enjoy the presence of God in that soulish way, in your soul. And what is the benefit you'll receive at the resurrection? Well then, your body will be resurrected and reunited to your soul, and you will enjoy God's presence for all eternity with the fullness of your human nature, body and soul. But you, you see, your, your, your person doesn't cease to exist um, when your body goes into the grave. Isn't that amazing? Your person doesn't cease to exist when your body goes into the grave. It continues to exist and is conscious and enjoys God's presence in, in, a, in a soulish way. And that is what uh, John saw in one of his visions. He saw the souls of the martyrs under the altar crying out saying, How long, O Lord, until you avenge and Bring everything to its conclusion. So, John was given a vision of that spiritual reality uh, in, in, in the Revelation. Chad, you have something? Yeah, so the, the, the reason I asked what I asked is because I've heard people argue that, like when when they're preaching through the Old Testament, like when Christ comes, when he appears in the Old Testament. Uh, yeah, yeah. And they're saying, like, well, look, even in the Old Testament, he he appeared with the body. and the, You know what I mean? And sure. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and so you do have those instances in the Old Testament where um, we, we can probably look back and say that's the pre-incarnate Christ, or that's a manifestation of the second person of the Trinity. And the text doesn't say that explicitly, but when we do theology you can look back and say that, that's the angel of the Lord, but no mere angel. That's not an angel, that's, that's God appearing before man. But none of that is incarnation. Why? Because it's temporary. And I would even argue that the incarnation is foreshadowed in those events. Think about that. Like, what is this about? Why? Why does? Why did those three men speak with Abraham before going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? And the middle figure is clearly more than just a normal angel. The middle figure is the angel of the Lord. We would look at that and go, "That's the pre-incarnate Christ, perhaps, or a manifestation of God." But it's not incarnation because it's not permanent. That wasn't the body of Christ there, the one that was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary that dwelt among us and died on the cross. It's something temporary. But by doing that, is the incarnation not foreshadowed? The incarnation is foreshadowed. So, there actually, I think somebody asked me last Sunday a question similar to the topic we're now discussing. But I said, you know, how could it be that the second person of the Trinity can. Act be the acting subject in a, in through through a human nature. Well, there were foreshadows of that prior to the incarnation. Um, God, the person of God, acting through—I mean, the, the person of God speaking to to Moses through a flaming fire in a bush that's burning but not consumed. The the, the person of God manifesting Himself. In glorious ways. God is not light, but He manifests Himself as light. God is not cloud, but He manifests Himself as cloud. God is not thunder and lightning, but He manifests Himself in these ways. He manifests Himself through the appearance of humanity in the Old, in the Old Testament time. And we're saying that he, he has done that in the incarnation, but permanently so. He has assumed a human nature and has it still and will for all eternity. It doesn't bring about any change in God, in the divine. But rather the, the person is forever acting through, th- through a human nature now. All of this is good. Uh, I've let time get away I was from me. going to say, so in the same way that we don't say uh, God has the nature of the plant. Because He was in the burning wood. Yes, right. He didn't change into a bush. He didn't change into a flame. He didn't change into a, a wave or a or, or beam of light uh, when He manifests his, his glory in these ways. Um, yes, He didn't change into an angel. None of that. But He acted through these forms. And He acted and is acting still through the human nature of Christ in the Incarnation. It's really wonderful to consider. I've, yeah. This is great. Thank you. Yeah, it, it, it is good. We could adjust our schedule a little if we have to. Could we get to the Chalcedonian definition real quick? Well, maybe we could make it through this. Let me read it. Therefore, this is it. Following the Holy Fathers, building upon those who have gone before us, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God, and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father, as regards His Godhood, Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us, as regards His manhood, like us in all respects, apart from sin, as regards His Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards His manhood, begotten for us men, and for our salvation of the Mary Of Mary the Virgin, the God bearer. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence. Not as parted or separated into two persons, "...but one and the same Son, and only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of Him, and our Lord Jesus Christ Himself taught us, and the Creed of the Fathers has handed down to us." This is a reference back to the Nicene Creed. Beautiful statement, so succinct. When I look at creeds and confessions and catechisms that are good and sound and orthodox, I say these are brilliant documents because they deal with complex things with precision and in brief." Really wonderful. Uh, Wellam does a great job at breaking this creed down into five points, and I think I could move through it very quickly. Let, let, me, let me try. Uh, first of all, this creed, the Chalcedonian definition asserts that Christ was fully God, contrary to Arianism, and fully man. You heard it in the language. Chalcedon also, secondly, clearly distinguished between person and nature. We've talked about that already. Person is a principle in its own right not deducible from nature or as a composite element from the union of the two natures. A person does not come into existence when the human nature is assumed, nor does it result in two persons. Instead, Chalcedon affirms that the Eternal Son is the person of the Incarnation who has always been in relation to the Father and the Spirit and who shares with them the divine nature. This is so so important. When you imagine this human nature uh, coming to be in the womb of the Virgin Mary, it's not as if there was a person there in that human nature, and the, the second person of the Trinity sidled up next to it. It's not as if there was a person in the human nature, maybe a person like me, Joe, you know, uh, existing within the human nature in the womb of the Virgin Mary and the second person of the Trinity came and booted that person out and took its place. Are you following with me? So there wasn't two persons in the human nature of Christ uh, nor was one person evicted and then the second person of the Triune God came to take its place. No, from the moment of conception the person of Christ was the Son. It, it, it's It's very important. Um, the person was the Son. Also, it's a person, not a nature, who becomes flesh. It's a person and not a nature who becomes flesh. That's a brilliant little statement right there. So important. The incarnation is a personal act of the Son, Philippians 2.7. It's the person of the Son who is the acting and suffering subject, not the nature of the Son. We must distinguish between these Things. B. Does this imply change in the Son? Not in the sense that the Son changes His identity or ceases to be what He always was. Even as the incarnate Son, He continues to possess all the divine functions and prerogatives. Colossians 117, Hebrews 1 1.3 Nevertheless, in His humanity, the Son lives and experiences life as a human in growth, joy, and pain. We will come back to this in later chapters um, it's actually the Doctrine of the Extra Calvinisticum, it's this, I, which is, I've been taught. It's an unfortunate uh, uh, title for it. But the idea is this, when the eternal Son of God assumed a human nature, He did not cease in any way to be what He always was. So that Christ is the Son of God incarnate, and yet the Son of God did not cease to be the Son of God. He continued to uphold the universe by the power of His hand. Uh, the glory in heaven was not diminished in that moment, etc., etc. As Donald MacLeod reminds us, even though God is omniscient, apart from the Incarnation, His knowledge uh, falls short of a personal experience. That is what the Incarnation made possible for God, real personal experience of human being. Uh, that's a great statement there, and we've already touched upon it. God really, in the, in the Incarnation, really was tempted for us and suffered for us, not according to the divine nature, but according to the human nature. Only the Incarnation can make that possible. Uh, three, Christ's human nature. I, I have to finish this lesson. Let me do it very quickly because we're, just, we're caught in between. Christ's human nature didn't have a hypostasis, a person of its own. Um, there was no individual man, Jesus, apart from the Son, assuming a human nature with a full set of human attributes, contra the doctrine of adoptionism. I actually described that a minute ago when I talked about um, a person being kicked out of the human nature of Christ and the Son moving in uh, in that crude way. Whenever we look at the life of Christ and ask, who said or did this, or who died for us? The answer is always the same, God the Son. Who did it? Who was acting? It's the person of the Son. The person of the Son. Not always the divine nature, not always according to the divine nature, but it's always the person of the Son who did it. Sometimes according to the divine nature, sometimes according to the human nature. But it's always the person of the Son who is the subject who is acting. Four, the union of Christ's two natures In the Son, doesn't obscure the integrity of either. Within Christ, the Creator-Creature distinction is preserved. There is no blend of natures or transfer slash communication of attributes. Um, That results in a third nature. Yet, the two natures aren't merely lying side by side without contact or interaction. Instead, the two natures subsist, they, they find their point of contact, in the one person who acts fully through both of them, but not contrary to either nature. And then fifthly, the Son assumed a complete human nature comprising a rational soul and body. Chalcedon distinguished person from soul and located the soul within the human nature. The Son then did not replace the human soul. Instead, he assumed a human soul, which entails that Christ had a human will and mind. A truth later formalized in 681 at the Third Council of Constantinople. God does not have a soul. Did you know that? God does not have a soul. He's a most pure spirit. Human beings have souls. Um, We have bodies, we have souls. But we have already distinguished between the nature and the person. Uh, So Christ did not kick out the soul. He assumed a human soul in the incarnation. The Son of God assumed a human soul in the incarnation. I've rushed through this last point, but I feel like we had... Such good conversation, the first point of this, first part of this uh, little lesson that it, it, it made up for it. Um, and I think the rest of the book will come back to some of these themes and develop them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this rich resource um, brought to us by Stephen Wellam. We thank you for uh, the clarity with which he presents this material. Um, though it is mysterious and difficult to <coughs> comprehend, he has helped us with his clarity. I pray that you would make us students, uh, not of this book, ultimately, but of the Word of God. I pray that we would read the Scriptures diligently, and that we would see these truths are true. Uh, Father, do help us to better comprehend Christ, our Savior. In His name we pray. Amen.